with Jesus seven years ago. Um, that was the best thing that had ever happened to me. <laughs> Although uh, I never understood why people would say they loved Jesus, but then they never acted like it. I mean, I, I was crazy about Jesus at the time. Um, I used to wake up every morning and I would ask myself, who am I going to share Jesus with today? <laughs> and uh, yeah, not a day went by when I didn't meet someone who needed to hear about the love of God. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in forever. <laughs> I still love Jesus. I just, um, I'm older. I'm busier. I'm more mature now. I look back now um, about how ridiculous I was about God, and it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> Actually, it's uh, it's really embarrassing. <laughs> I'm Emily, and I'm the church. Thank you for being here as we continue our study called Seven, examining the actual words of Jesus, not only to seven churches in the first century in the province of Asia, but seven in Revelation represents completeness, and it's Jesus' word to all of his churches in all places and for all times. I want to begin by just thanking you. Thanking you as a church for your amazing uh, adaptability and graciousness. You've uh, handled the transition so well into this venue as the auditorium has been remodeled. You've handled changes in service times as we've had to be flexible to realities uh, outside our control. Uh, You've handled the video format well, and I appreciate that. That I feel some pressure because I, we have three campuses and I can only be in one place at one time. And most of our campuses get the video all the time. And I'm actually glad you have a little bit of an experience of what it's like for them. In fact, I'd like to ask you to pray for the West Fort Worth campus because I will be there next Sunday. It's their first Sunday to go to two services. After just one year, they've grown to the point they need to do that. And I'm excited for them and ask you to pray for them this week. That's good news. But you've had such a gracious spirit. That's really the history of our church. And I want you to know I do not take that for granted. Now, last week I preached with passion. Because when you talk about how big Jesus is, you ought to be passionate. And in the course of my teaching, I pointed out that I cannot understand when someone is teaching about Jesus how anybody could be playing on their cell phones. I did get some emails this week from people wanting me to know that when they have their cell phone out, it is because they are looking at their Bible app or because they're using the function to take notes of the sermon. And I am totally cool with that. And I think God is too. And so during my sermon, if you're using your phone to read the Bible, to take notes, or to check a ranger score, I think God totally (laughs) understands that. But I have asked the cell phone police 
to take any cell phones doing anything else and they will be sold in the money placed in preacher retirement funds. So just know <laughs> that that's going on. My best friend outside of my wife is Chris Seidman. He was on our staff years ago. He's a powerful preacher at a church in Dallas. And once or twice a year, we try to attend a Bible conference together. And to save our church's money, we'll typically get a hotel room together with a couple of beds, share the cost of a rental car. And so the last several years, we've done that at the Abilene Christian University Bible Lectures. But this year, this past week, my wife came with me. Because we have a freshman at ACU now she wanted to spend some time with. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was playing golf with Chris. And I told him that Jamie was coming with me to the Bible lectures. And he, looking perplexed, turned to me and said, Does that mean you're going to room with her? (laughs) And I informed him that yes, as much as I love him... She is still my favorite person to share a room with. I find it interesting that of all the metaphors in Scripture talking about the relationship of Jesus to the church, none is used more than the metaphor of marriage. And we understand that one of the greatest struggles in marriage is maintaining the love level. Now, there is no hint in Scripture that Jesus ever wrestles with a diminishing passion for His bride, the church. His bride, however, often struggles to keep first loves first. And the husband notices, even if the bride doesn't. So with that in mind, listen to the first letter Jesus sent to a church against the backdrop of a husband speaking to his wife. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name. And have not grown weary yet. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Now, you're going to see some constants in all seven of these letters. In every letter, Jesus is going to begin with a description of himself that's taken right out of chapter 1. In every letter, he is going to uh, say, if you overcome, there's going to be a reward. In every letter, he's going to tell the church to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And in every letter, Jesus is going to say, I know what's going on. Now, this is important. Because often in marriage, one mate thinks they can keep what's going on from the other mate. Jesus says, I know everything my bride is doing. He walks among the churches, so he knows about the churches. And this is why the churches need to listen attentively to the Spirit of Christ. It is an act of worship on our part, just like it is an act of love on Jesus' part to point out our blind spots To show us the ways our marriage is slipping that we don't see. To warn us of things that are potentially fatal. If you see some symptoms in a friend that could be a condition that could kill them. And you don't say anything. You don't love your friend. So Jesus knows what's going on in the marriage. And he speaks the truth. And he loves his wife. And that's one reason why, and this convicted me as a husband. Jesus looks for reasons to publicly praise his bride. And he does so every opportunity he gets. And there was a lot about the church in Ephesus to praise. Ephesus. Imagine going to London New York City, Tokyo, Los Angeles, and there's no church there, and you're going to start one. That's Ephesus. Probably no ancient city has been excavated any more than Ephesus. You see a picture there of the library in Ephesus. There were temples there like Artemis or Diana in Ephesus. There's an amphitheater there that holds over 20,000 people. One of the world's most important harbors was in Ephesus. They estimate over a quarter of a million people lived in Ephesus. And that's where a Jewish rabbi showed up one day and started preaching Jesus. Think of the history of the church in Ephesus. You are founded by Paul. Think about the teachers you've heard in the short 40 to 50 year history of your church. Priscilla and Aquila taught there. Apollos taught there. Timothy was one of the first pastor teachers of your church. In fact, the early church fathers say Ephesus is where John, as an old man, settled down and brought with him Jesus' mother, who he was caring for, and that's where she died. So just imagine having the mother of Jesus as one of your members. 
Think about hug and howdy. They say, meet someone you don't know yet. You say, hi, I'm Brian. I work in the nursery. Hi, I'm Mary. I gave birth to your Savior. I mean, do you think you, think you could stay awake that Sunday sitting next to her? The Bible says that in the short time Paul was in Ephesus, the word went out all over Asia. In other words, this church was responsible for churches getting planted in that part of the empire. All over Asia, people are looking to Ephesus as the mother church that gave birth to them. What a church. This is a church with a history of unassailable teaching and undeniable impact. It wasn't hard to find yes qualities about this church. And Jesus did. For one thing, he says the believers there are achievers there. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. Remember when Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 2, he said, Now, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so no one will boast. For we are Christ's workmanship, created to do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. And that church took those words seriously. You see, you don't understand grace if you are spiritually lazy. Grace opposes merit, but it never opposes effort. There is an understanding in Scripture that people saved by grace are going to be loyal servants in the kingdom of God. And these people got it. The one who offers us rest never condones spiritual laziness. And this was an active church. And it was a sound church. Ephesus was a church unafraid to expose false teaching. See, you would expect such an important church to be attacked by Satan with false doctrine. And so remember in Acts when Paul calls for the Ephesian elders and he says to them, I don't know if I'll ever see you again, so be on guard. Because I know in the days to come, Wolves are going to disguise themselves as sheep and come into the flock. And he says, they're going to try to distort the truth. And these elders were ready for it. And Jesus said, you did what Paul told you to do. You expose people who claim to be apostles and they weren't really. By the way, one thing you're going to see in these letters is that Jesus is not politically correct. Because if you're politically correct, you're tolerant of everything. And Jesus is consistently intolerant of those that tolerate what distorts the gospel. In fact, remember when I did that series called What Jesus Hates? And several people said to me, you shouldn't use the word hate with Jesus. Well, I use it because he did. He said, you hate what the Nicolaitans are trying to do. Good, because I hate it too. Jesus hates anything that tries to distort the gospel of the love of God. And so he commends them for their hard work, including the hard work of guarding the truth. And so no doubt all the other churches in the area thought Ephesus is the model church. 
If they had a church growth conference, we would have all sent our elders to go to Ephesus to hear what they're doing. You'd click on their website to that link that says Statement of Beliefs, and you'd have read it and said, my, that is a sound church. You'd have clicked on the link that said List of Ministries, and you'd have said, wow, look at all the good things they're doing. This church is active. This church is sound. And this church is sound asleep. Because Jesus says, yet. And when Jesus says, yet, you need to perk up. Because churches can do the right things for the wrong reasons. And you know this is true. Because we've seen it all around us in marriages. Marriages where the couples are going through the motions, staying together, existing functionally, but not living passionately together. Because every relationship is susceptible to love erosion. Imagine a young couple, first year of marriage. She's got a cough. Sweetheart, I'm worried about my baby girl. We need to get that sniffle checked out. I'm taking you straight to the doctor, and after that, I want you to come home and rest. Don't worry about dinner. I'll pick up something from that Italian restaurant you like so much. Second year of marriage. Honey, it sounds like your cough is getting worse. Do you want me to run to the drugstore and get some medicine? And I can drive through McDonald's on the way home. Third year of marriage. Baby. Baby. You act like you're not feeling well. Don't bother cooking a big meal tonight. Just fix me a sandwich and bring it to the den. I'm watching the game. (laughs) Fourth year. You got to be sensible when you got a cold. After you finish the wash and give the kids a bath, why don't you go on to bed? I'll just order a pizza. Fifth year. You know, if you just gargle or something instead of sitting there barking like a seal... Do you want to stay in a marriage where the main goal is just not to get a divorce? See, I want my wife's love, not just her loyalty. Jamie wants my affection. Not just my promise to be a good provider. And Jesus wants passion in his marriage. So he says, looks good on the outside. You work hard. You preach well. But we both know. It's not like it used to be. You have forsaken your first love. 
She's talking about love for Jesus, love for people. doesn't matter. The Bible says you can't separate them. You cannot love God if you don't love people. You will not love people if you don't love God. I like how it reads in the New Living Translation, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. And I'm sure somebody never thought, well, wait a second, Jesus. Doesn't our sound teaching and our active ministry prove that we love you? But as we said last time, it is very possible to make orthodoxy the center, to make ministry the center, and put Jesus on the periphery. And before you know it, Jesus is the cheerleader on the sideline telling everybody to try hard, but he's not the game. And I believe a waning passion for Jesus is the struggle underneath every other struggle a church thinks that it has, including the struggle to love other people. Remember this. The biggest problem in the church today is that we don't think lack of passion for Jesus is our biggest problem. Because I've heard churches for 30 years talk about the biggest problem facing the church today. It was divorce. It's liberalism. It's poor leadership. It's young people leaving. No. All those are symptoms. The biggest problem is that we don't think not being passionate about Jesus is our biggest problem. And if I feel passionate about this, it's because I grew up in a church that left her first love. A church that is no longer here. I'll never be able to take my children to the church I was baptized in. To see the church where I preached my first sermon. Because the marriage ended. You see, church success without love is futile. And one of the things this letter should show us is how Jesus measures church health. We tend to measure it different ways. Imagine you're moving to a new town and you need to find a new church home. And so you visit different churches. What's going to impress you? Wow, their music's amazing. They got an awesome children's ministry. Their preacher's strong. Does it matter? If we are a Bible-believing church, if we're not in love with the living word. What does it matter how much good we do in the city if Jesus isn't good enough for us? See, here's the sobering reality, and I'm preaching mainly to myself. It is easier to preach and do ministry than stay in love with Jesus. And consequently... 
This land is full of churches that are doing all the right things. But something doesn't feel right. You've sensed that in your friend's marriage, haven't you? Everything on the outside seems okay, but there's just a sense something's wrong in this relationship. You've sensed it in churches too. They're busy, cool websites, nice preaching, but something's missing. Everything seems healthy. But something's sick. My church didn't love Jesus. We love truth, at least our understanding of truth. And every week we preached on why we were true and the church down the street wasn't. We loved the church of Christ more than we loved Christ. And it was obvious because of the way we treated other people, especially people that were of a different color than we were. And Jesus came along one day, and he took away the candlestick. My church died. Not because people moved away, not because of bad leadership, not because of bad economy. But because Jesus said, this marriage is a sham. You see, the condition of lovelessness is fatal. When we operate as a church out of any motivation besides love, here's what's going to happen. We get tired, we get cranky, we get frustrated, we get depressed. It started as being in love with a person, and somehow it shifted to being in obedience to a system. And the only hope is revival. Because the only other option is removal. Jesus said in verse 5, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. And, and, you know, it's hard to know when that happens. I think sometimes it happens before a church stops meeting. Just because people are meeting in a room doesn't mean Jesus hadn't left the building. And what is true of churches is true of each one of us. And right now, Jesus is asking some of you, What happened to the passion? And the Holy Spirit has been tugging at your heart the last few minutes, begging you to listen. The good news is declining love life is fixable. Love leaks can be repaired. Love tanks can be refilled. And it begins with admitting that lack of passion for Jesus is sin. And you need to hear that. 
If it wasn't sin, he wouldn't have said repent. Soundness and busyness without being in love with Jesus is sin. Are you using Jesus as a means to your end because you don't want to go to hell? Why do you want to go to heaven? Why do you want to spend forever with somebody you don't want to spend time with right now? Jesus is calling their church and our church and every church back to first command faithfulness. Love God with everything you have. There's no higher priority than loving him who loved you first. And you don't wait for the love to come back. You will for it to come back. So Jesus says, verse 5, you change your hearts and you do what you did at first. Do you remember how you acted and how you felt when you fell in love? When I was dating Jamie and we were reaching the point where this was getting pretty serious, I remember one night... I was to pick her up at 7 o'clock for a date. And she called and said, can you come at 6.30 instead? And I did somersaults. I was so excited. 30 more minutes with Jamie? Do you remember how some of you used to drive for several hours just so you could see her for a few hours before you had to drive back for several hours? And the delusion is, well, that's just how everything starts. It can't stay there. Well, did you ever hear Jesus say that? Last uh, spring, a young woman in our church became a Christian. She fell in love with Jesus. And she sent an email to one of our ministers that he showed to me that was so precious. I'm so excited about being a Christian, she said. I come to church on Saturday night. But I come back on Sunday and I go to two Bible classes because I have so much about Jesus to learn. And I come on Wednesday night to hear about the story, but I'm also in a small group. And I don't work on Wednesday, so if you need me to come up to church and do anything on Wednesday to help, I'm available. And I'm also free Saturday nights after church. If you need me to do anything, just let me know. And my first thought was, how cool to see somebody so excited about finding Jesus. And my second thought was, how long will this last? Because I think we've decided it is normal for the love level to decline. So we baptize that opinion, and we make it okay. The problem, we know people who've stayed in love forever in their marriage. And we know Christians who never stopped 
being crazy about Jesus, don't we? When I came to this church over 20 years ago, the first guy I noticed, first time I worshiped here, had on blue jeans and a motorcycle t-shirt and long hair and a beard. His name was Billy Ben. And he was easy to notice because every time we sang about Jesus, he did his arms like this. And he was the only one in the whole church that did that back then. He had been saved from a life of drug abuse and he couldn't get over what Jesus had done for him. And he'd do this every time. And some people called our elders and said, He's holding up his hands. What are we going to do about that? And the elders were so cool. He's just excited because he found Jesus. Give him time. He'll settle down and be like the rest of us. (laughs) But Billy never did settle down. He never lost the absolute wonder that God would love him and save him. And he stayed so in love with Jesus that one day Jesus said, Billy, come on home. We'll just hang out all day. And Jesus says, it's a lie that you can't stay in love. Love can be recovered. Love can be retained. And love will be rewarded. You see, where's the love is the final. Now, churches can test whatever they want to test, but Jesus gives the final. And he's already said it's going to have two questions. Did you love God? Did you love somebody else? The first question is not going to be, what did you do? It will be, who did you love? I hear a lot of things about our church when people find out my job. We have an interesting reputation. We are known in this city as a church that helps people. And I'm glad for that. We're known among churches across the country as a church with a big, huge vision. And I'm proud of that. We're known in some places as a church that has more than one worship style. But are we known as the church that is just crazy? About Jesus. Because if that is the center, everything else will happen. And if it's not, does anything else matter? And so I'm asking the church this week to join me. I'm going to carve out time every day, starting today, for seven days. I am going to pray that my church will be more in love with Jesus. And I'd like to ask you to join me. Because it's powerful when you see a marriage that never loses 
the passion. One example of that is Billy and Ruth Graham. Powerful, loving relationship for over 50 years until Ruth went home to see Jesus. She says an interesting conversation about meeting Billy and wondering what kind of husband he might be. And here's what she said. She said, I quickly knew he wanted to please God more than any man I'd ever known. And if I married him, I would always be second to God. And there is no better place to be. Let everything else about our church come in second. First is the bride has stayed in love with the groom. And I have to realize that an us issue starts with me. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head right now. What did Jesus say? Listen to the Holy Spirit speak to the church. And I'm going to ask you to do that right now. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you about your relationship to Jesus? Now receive that word and give it back to Jesus as a pledge. you all stand with me now, please. I'm going to ask our prayer teams to come and take their places at the appropriate spots. The Bible says we're kingdoms of priests, and priests help people connect to God. And so right now, maybe one of us can help you grow in love for Jesus by praying for you, by talking to you about how to become a Christian. So give us this privilege right now as we sing, as we worship, and as we seek to obey the Holy Spirit's call to love Jesus.